Are you a current or future physician assistant wanting to learn more about finances? Then join me on this journey to become a PA the FI way. Hi, my name is Kat and I'm a practicing certified physician assistant who will be your host. It took me five years after I started practicing medicine as a PA to thoroughly dive into my personal finances after I discovered the concept of financial independence. I want to use what I have learned to help you avoid some of the financial mistakes that I have made while sharing some of the financial wins that I have had along the way. Join me as we discuss financial strategies to guide you to becoming a physician assistant on the way to financial independence. Welcome back to all the current and future PAs out there on their way to financial independence. I hope you are all having a wonderful week. I am really looking forward to sharing this information that we are about to cover. It may seem a bit overwhelming at first, especially if this is the first time hearing it. But again, as I have said before, it is very important that you understand what you are doing with your finances because no one else cares about your finances more than you will. I was able to work remotely from home today. My office has started construction and our managers gave us the choice of working from home or trying to move offices within the building during the construction. During my first job out of PA school, there was construction at that clinic. And because it was family medicine with walk-in care, we couldn't work from home. So we were seeing patients and you could hear the power tools such as the drills going in the background or you could hear the construction workers taking a hammer and doing some demo. And let's just say it was not very conducive to trying to see patients. So as I've mentioned, I currently work in outpatient psychiatry. So the company that I've been working with has been doing a lot of remote telepsych work with the COVID pandemic. So I am thankful to be working in a specialty that remote work is an option if needed. So after I was done seeing patients today, I took a little coffee break, had a latte, and had a little bit of chocolate to try to take a break before delving into some of these topics today. All of this information is super interesting, but again, it can seem a little dry and a little overwhelming, especially at the beginning. But my goal is to try to share it with you in a very clear way so that you have the tools that you need to be able to take control of your own finances so that you can eventually reach financial independence. And once you reach financial independence, you have so many more options for your future self, whether that is working part-time or whether that is switching into a different type of specialty or a different type of field or being able to work on hobbies more. Again, we've covered the different options of financial independence in the past. So I really hope that you've taken the time to really consider why you're thinking about trying to pursue financial independence because that'll help you to be able to focus on your goals easier. I first would like to cover why you should invest, not just save money. And then I'm going to do a brief overview about index funds. And then I'm going to go into the topic of what may be the optimal order of operations for investing and focusing on your retirement accounts. And here's your friendly reminder that I am not a financial planner. I'm not a financial expert and I'm not a tax accountant either. If you feel like you need professional advice, please try to seek it, but ensure that your financial planner is something called a fiduciary only, 
meaning that they truly have your best interest in mind, not their best interest, meaning that they can earn quite a bit of money off of you if you're not careful. I am simply a certified PA that has learned this information over the years, and I'm wanting to share it with you so that you are able to set yourself up for financial success. So in the last episode, we discussed emergency funds and we discussed some options of how to tackle your debt and how to pay your debt back. So once you have decided to build an emergency fund and then have a plan to pay back your debt, then the next area to focus on is investing your money. And as I had previously touched on in the last episode as well, I think that it's important that you can recognize that you can try to build an emergency fund, you can try to pay back debt, and you can try to invest a little bit simultaneously. Now you probably will have to prioritize one of those areas, at least to start with. And as I had previously mentioned, I think it's important to have at least a small, very liquid or very accessible emergency fund, such as $1,000, maybe up to $5,000, before you look into building your emergency fund more robustly. And again, that amount that you're aiming for is certainly personal, but many in the financial independence community suggest about three to six months worth. But some people feel more comfortable with 12 months worth of expenses for their emergency fund. Again, all of this was covered in the last episode, so definitely take a listen if you have not done so already. So as I have mentioned, it is very important that you invest the money that you have saved, not just save it. If you only save the money, it will take you forever to actually build wealth. It's very important that you get that money invested so that those dollars earn more dollars for you. So we've talked about how if money is just sitting in a savings account, likely it's actually losing value over time. But I wanted to share this example with you about why investing is so important. So I would like to compare two female PAs as this example, and this is completely theoretical. But let's call them Saving Sarah and Investing Ingrid. So in this illustration, both of these PAs are trying to set aside money from the ages of 25 through 65. If you are listening to this podcast episode, I hope that you are retired before 65. But again, even if you retire from traditional work earlier, you may elect to pursue other options. So let's just go with these 40 years as an example. So in the example, saving Sarah saves $1,000 per month from the age of 25 to 65, and she puts it in a bank account. She just lets it sit there in her account. Well, after 40 years, at the age of 65, saving Sarah will have $457,000 saved. Okay, that sounds like a fair amount of money, but is it really an amount that she could live on in retirement? It's possible. It kind of depends upon how much social security she'll be getting a month. As a side note about social security, no one knows the future with social security. So many will not really take into consideration the guesstimated amount of social security that they'll get in retirement when they're calculating their financial independence number, but rather choose to view it as more of a bonus or a raise for their income at that time if they are actually able to get social security. 
I'm suspecting Social Security likely will still be around by the time that we age over the years, but who really knows, or it might be a decreased amount than what you're currently thinking. All right, back to the scenario. So let's review what investing Ingrid has done over the past 40 years from age 25 to 65. So instead of saving $1,000 per month as saving Sarah did, she invests one half of that, so only $500 a month, and she invests it into a low-cost, broad-based index fund. So after 40 years, investing Ingrid has $1,205,788 at the age of 65. This example is amazing. It truly shows the power of compounding interest when you do invest and the importance of investing. Even though investing Ingrid only invests one half or $500 per month compared to saving Sarah's $1,000 per month, she has $1,205,788 versus $457,000 to live on. Now, I completely recognize that some of you may be scared to invest, or maybe it's more so that you just haven't felt like you've learned all there is to know about investing yet. I hope that I can motivate you to start investing, but I also hope that I can encourage you to learn the why behind it so that you feel more comfortable in order to invest. Again, if you have made it through PA school and are a physician assistant, you not only have had to have discipline, but you've had to learn a ton of knowledge. So I know that you can learn this financial stuff. So next, let's talk about why you should highly consider investing into low-cost, broad-based index funds. So let's discuss what that means. Low-cost means that the fees are low. So it is important that when you choose funds to invest in, that you look at the fees. Index funds are a type of mutual fund, and some mutual funds have fees of 1% or 2% or even more. And although 1% or 2% does not sound like a lot, it really does add up over time, and I will illustrate that in a moment here. However, many low-cost index funds have fees less than 0.2%, and many of them have fees less than 0.05%. One of the well-loved low-cost broad-based index funds in the financial independence community is VTSAX, or there is something called an ETF equivalent that is VTI as a ticker symbol. So as a side note, ETFs are very similar to index funds, except that ETFs can be traded and sold throughout the day. And they also often have a lower minimal investment requirement that's needed in order to invest in it. Many in the financial independence community really like Vanguard because they were one of the first companies to start using index funds that had super low fees for their customers. Additionally, Vanguard's ownership structure has been made in the sense that the shareholders or the investors of the Vanguard funds actually own the company Vanguard. So that is why many like to invest in Vanguard. However, there are several other companies out there, such as Fidelity or Charles Schwab, 
Fidelity actually has a total stock market index fund that has a zero fee associated with it, and that is VZROX. So Fidelity is sort of challenging the other companies by coming out with an index fund that has such a low fee. Additionally, I have heard that Vanguard's interface online isn't quite as user-friendly as Fidelity, but to each their own. I actually own both Vanguard and Fidelity, so it really depends upon the type of stock options that you have available for you. Your company may have Charles Schwab or may use other types of companies that have other types of investment options. But the point of this is to really encourage you to dig into what the fees are. Okay, going back to what index funds are. So we reviewed what the low cost means. It means that you need to look at all the investment options and see what the fees associated are. So what is an index fund? Index funds are an investment where you are investing in a collection of things that tracks something called an index. So what this means is that if there is a total stock market index for the United States, it means that if you invest in that, you are investing in all of the publicly traded companies within the United States. There are also international index funds or there are index funds that track something called the S&P 500. And what those are, are tracking the top 500 largest companies within the United States. So S&P 500 versus total stock market index funds are very similar besides, again, the S&P 500 ones only tracked the 500 largest companies within the United States. And then total stock market, you are also investing in the smaller companies as well. These perform pretty similarly, but there are some differences. So Again, do your research and figure out which one you want to invest in, or within your investment options, you may only have the option of either a total stock market or an S&P 500, and just know that they're both usually pretty good options as long as the fees are low. So when I encourage you to consider in investing low-cost, broad-based index funds, the broad-based part means that you are investing in many companies. So this brings up one of the benefits of investing in an index fund, something called diversification. Now let's review some examples of investments that would not be very well diversified. For example, some people want to invest all of their money only into one stock of one company. So they may be an avid fan of Amazon or an avid fan of Tesla and believe that these companies are just going to do so amazingly over the next few years that they want to put all of their money into that one stock. Although these companies are pretty awesome, I personally would somewhat consider this something called gambling. If you have all of your money into one stock, you have no idea what the future holds for that one company. And that's taking a huge risk. But rather, if you invest into low-cost, broad-based index funds, you are investing into the market, or into the United States, or into internationally traded funds, it means that you are investing into multiple companies that are within this index. This carries much less risk. 
Part of a company being in an index means that it needs to be performing well. Well, if the company just doesn't start to perform very well, you know, take the S&P 500, for example, if the company is between 450 down to 500 of the top 500 companies in the United States don't start doing well, well, then there are plenty of companies right behind them that would outperform them and take their spot. So again, investing into these index funds carries less risk because if the company is not doing well, then it gets kicked out of the index and another better performing company comes right on in and that allows the whole index fund as a whole to start doing better. Now let's go back to the individual stock example that I just reviewed about Amazon stocks and Tesla stocks. You might say, oh, but I really like these companies and I do believe in their future. Well, that's great because much of index funds has all of these tech companies in there because they are definitely one of the higher performing companies within the index. So if you are investing in an index fund, you are investing in Amazon or Tesla already, but with way less risk than just investing into the individual stock. So we have covered why index funds are great choices because they have low fees, which means that you will earn more and keep more of your money. And then how they provide more diversification with your investments. So that means it's less risky. And then one more benefit of index funds is the fact that they are passively managed. What this means is that there is no one actively trying to trade the stocks within the funds or try to make changes or try to quote beat the market, but rather the index funds keep up with the market because they track the index that is many of the companies within the market. So passively managed means that you just let them do their thing. You don't try to optimize or trade stocks every day. They're pretty easy. They're pretty boring. I like to say that there's two areas in life where it's actually pretty good to be boring. One is the area of medicine. You want to be a boring patient means that you don't have a lot going on. Means that you're usually healthy, right? Well, you also want to be a born investor. Invest into index funds and let them be passive. It means that you're not having a financial advisor or anyone else trying to beat the market and earn you more money. Because here's a very interesting fact. Most of the time, they can't do it. Fidelity did an audit over the course of 10 years, and they found that the customers that did the best were either dead or they forgot about their accounts. So what this means is that if you take the thinking and emotion out of investing, you likely will do absolutely great because the people who were dead or completely forgot about their accounts Just let their investments do their thing over those years. They weren't trying to get all fancy or try to take a huge risk on certain individual stocks. So passive funds are a lot less risky. All right, now that we have reviewed why it is important that you actually invest your money, not just save it in a bank account or save it under your mattress or save it in a coin jar, and why you should highly consider investing into low-cost broad-based index funds, which should likely make up a large part of your investment portfolio, 
although there are some other investment options that can be covered in the future. But again, we're just trying to get your foot into investing. And many people who invest in index funds can keep it super simple and do really, really well over time. So here is an illustration of why fees matter in regards to your investments. So in this example, we are just going to look at an amount of $10,000 sitting in an investment account for 40 years. And we are going to say that the returns or the interest that it is earning is 10%. 10% some years could be considered a bit generous, but some years it's pretty average of returns. So for those 40 years, that $10,000 just sitting there, hanging out, being passively invested, you're not messing with it. If it is invested in a low-cost broad-based index fund that has an expense ratio of 0.04%, you will have earned $446,056 from just letting $10,000 sit in an investment account for 40 years. That shows the power of compounding interest. Well, let's show what fees can do to that power of compounding interest. If instead of choosing an index fund with low fees, you go with a mutual fund that has high fees of 2%, after 40 years, you will have only earned $217,245. That's less than half of the original amount. So that was the difference of having an investment fund with a 2%, which is high compared to 0.04%. Again, you think that those numbers don't sound like a lot, but those fees will eat into your returns. This is why it is so important that you learn to check the fees when you are investing. So next, let's start talking about how to optimize the order of operations of your investment accounts slash retirement accounts. Keep in mind, many of you who are investing are very likely going to be starting to do this through your retirement accounts through your employer. So once you have saved a small amount of an emergency fund and are ready to start investing, the very first thing that you should do is get your full employer retirement savings match. So once you start working as a physician assistant, you very likely will be offered a retirement plan benefit that may include a 401k, which is one of the most common types of retirement plans at most companies, a 403b, which is a type of retirement plan for certain tax-exempt organizations, nonprofit employers, or cooperative hospital service organizations, a 457b, which is a type of retirement plan for state employees, or a TSP, which is a thrift savings plan, which is a type of retirement plan offered to federal employees and uniformed service members. So all of you amazing PAs out there in the military, you likely have an access to a TSP. If one of these types of retirement plans is available through your company, you likely will be offered something called an employer match. An employer matching program is a benefit that the employer or the company that you work for offers to match up to a certain amount of your salary that you contribute to your retirement account for the year. So it's an incentive to start to get you to invest. 
Now listen up. This is free money. So it's worth taking some time to understand how this works for you to ensure that you are maximizing it to its fullest benefit. Every single company's employer match program can vary though. So one company may offer 100% match up to 4% of your salary. And another may choose to offer 50% match up to 6% of your salary. Every company's program and wording is completely different. So double check your company's employee match program details very carefully so you fully understand it. Work with someone in your HR department if you need some help to understand this. You wouldn't want to accidentally contribute less money to your 401k than what you need to earn to get your employer's full match because, again, this is free money, so make sure you are taking full advantage of this benefit. Okay, now that you have decided to earn your entire employer match in your retirement account, let's talk about the difference between a traditional 401k and a Roth 401k. Again, these two type of retirement accounts are very common, so that's why I'm starting with them. So when we refer to 401ks, many people are referring to them in the sense of traditional 401ks, but there is something called a Roth 401k that you can choose to invest in as well. So unlike traditional 401k plans, Roth 401k plans are built by using post-tax dollars from your income. So traditional 401k plans the amount that you put into there is not taxed right away. So if you invest into traditional 401k plans, that saves you taxes on your current year. However, if you allow money to get taxed and then invest it in your Roth 401k plan, when you withdraw this money in the future, you will not have to pay income tax on it for those years that you withdraw it. Some may like the Roth option, especially if you believe that your, quote, income in retirement or the withdrawal amount per year that you are budgeting for yourself to live on will be more than your current income as a practicing PA. So examples of this may be that you decide that you're going to invest tons of money, you are going to build a multi-million dollar portfolio so that when it is time to retire, you decide to live an absolutely lavish lifestyle. Or it could be another type of PA that has opened their own practice. And even though they retire, perhaps that that practice is still generating money and they never really sold it fully off to someone else to manage or someone else who's a PA but has another type of side hustle that starts generating money. And depending upon the amount of that money, it is possible that your future salary could be more than your current salary as a practicing PA. However, keep in mind that many will actually need less income per year in retirement than what you are currently living on. For example, if you currently have kids at this time, by the time you retire, your kids may have moved out of the house, which may decrease the amount of money you need for your total budget. You might not have to pay for all of their food, all of their extracurricular activities, their daycare, their sports, all of those things. 
Additionally, it's possible by the time that you decide to retire that your mortgage may be paid off. So that very likely would decrease the needed yearly retirement income to be able to live off of. So many employers will actually offer both a traditional and Roth 401k to their employers, and you actually could contribute to both of them to get some of the benefits from each if you would like. However, the yearly contribution limit or the max amount that you can contribute per year is combined between both the traditional and the Roth 401k. For the year 2021, the max that you can contribute for a 401k is $19,500. And again, that would be the total combined between traditional and Roth if you do decide to split it. So after you have decided to start investing, you should check to see if you have access to a 457B. So as I touched on before, this is a type of government retirement plan that is usually available for state employees. So this type of retirement plan has a couple of additional benefits. The first is you are not penalized for withdrawing money from this plan no matter your age. So for 401k and 403b plans, you are penalized if you try to withdraw the money earlier than age 59 and a half if you are still working or age 55 if you are no longer working. Now we will later discuss some caveats to this for early retirees, but this is the general standard IRS rule at this time. But this is not the case for the 457b plan. This is clearly a benefit if you are a PA trying to reach financial independence and potentially considering early retirement. Keep in mind, though, that the amount that you do withdraw will be taxed at your income rate during that year or the years that you withdraw from it. So it's important to try to have your tax rate low at that time. Another benefit is if you have one, you may also have access to a 401k or a 403b plan through your company. And if so, you can contribute the maximum allowed amount to each accounts for the year. So if you are fortunate enough to be offered both a 457B plus a 401k or a 457B plus a 403B, then you have the current benefit of being able to contribute up to $19,500 of pre-tax dollars from your income into both accounts or up to $39,000 for the year. These contribution limits do change year to year, so definitely check what the current IRS contribution limits for these accounts are. These contributions to both accounts would be tax-advantaged when you invest them and when you contribute to them, which means that the money going into these accounts is not taxed when you contribute to them, but they will be taxed later upon withdrawal, which means that they are tax-deferred. So these pre-tax contributions help lower your taxes for the current year, which becomes super important as you start earning more throughout your PA career. So 457B plans have some pretty awesome features, but they often do not offer a employer match. So that's something to double check on. So once you have received your employer match, now is often a good time to fully fund your emergency fund if you have not yet done so. And again, we talked about this in detail during the last episode. So we touch on this next step a bit in the last episode, but it's also a good time to consider whether to pay down the rest of your debt aggressively or to start investing. Again, this decision is very personal. If you are very debt 
adverse and hate carrying that debt with you, you may elect to put every single penny towards your debt. However, if you don't mind having a bit of debt while you invest, it often can mathematically work out better for you to do both, pay down debt plus invest. So any high interest debt over 10% should try to be paid off as soon as possible. But debt with interest between 5% to 10% is somewhat debatable whether you should focus on trying to pay that debt off or trying to invest. But usually any debt that's lower than 5%, it's pretty reasonable for most situations to try to focus on investing while making the minimum payments as the market typically does quite a bit better than 5%. As a reminder, if you delay investing early in your career to focus only on paying back your debt, you are missing out on the magic of compound interest. Compound interest needs time to build upon itself and increase in value over the years. The next type of investment account that I would like to review with you is one of my favorite investment tools that I have learned to use over the past few years. So this next step is to check to see if you are offered an HSA and decide if an HSA is right for you. So HSA stands for Health Savings Account. These accounts are so great for so many reasons that I'm about to review with you, and I am incredibly excited to share with you why these accounts are so awesome. So let's review what an HSA actually is. HSAs are savings accounts that allow the owner or you to pay for qualifying medical expenses in a tax advantage way. So let's review some HSA facts. The first fact is these are the only triple tax advantaged accounts out there. So what are the three ways that HSAs are tax advantaged for you? The first is that the contributions that you make to an HSA every year are tax deductible, which means that they are pre-tax contributions. This means that if you contribute to an HSA, it helps to lower your taxable income by that amount for that year. Any way that you can pay less in taxes as a PA as your income grows, is a huge win. The second way that HSAs are tax advantage is that the earned interest in your HSA account is also tax-free, meaning that if you leave the HSA money in your account to grow and invest it over the years, that growth also will not be taxed. And the third and final way that HSAs are tax advantage are that any amount of money that you withdraw from an HSA account, as long as it is used for qualified medical expense, is also tax-free. There are no other triple tax-advantaged accounts out there, so this is why HSAs are usually an amazing tool that those in the financial independence community use. So the second HSA fact that I would like to review with you are that HSA accounts are only available if you have a qualifying high deductible health plan, something called an HDHP. That's the acronym for that. So if you have many medical problems or your family members have many medical problems or use many medications or you know have frequent office visits or frequent ER visits or hospital stays, it is probable that a high deductible healthcare plan with an HSA account may not be the best choice for you. Alternatively, if you are pretty young and healthy and perhaps only go to the clinic for your physical every year or 
you're occasionally sick and need to go to urgent care, or maybe even an ER visit every once in a while, HSA plans probably are the way to go for you. The third fact about HSAs that I would like to review with you are HSAs have contribution limits. So because these accounts are triple tax advantage, they are so awesome, but the IRS doesn't want you to contribute all of your money to them, unfortunately. So for the year 2021, the HSA contribution limits are as follows. If you have an individual HSA, so it's only for you, you can contribute $3,600. And if you have a family HSA, so perhaps your spouse and you, or perhaps your spouse, you and your kids, you can contribute $7,200 for the year. There is a catch-up contribution limit of an extra $1,000 for those age 55 years and older. So the next HSA fact is many types of expenses qualify to be covered by HSA dollars. So what are some examples of qualifying medical expenses that you can use your HSA dollars to pay for? So here's a non-comprehensive list to get you started. Medical bills, prescription medications, dental bills, physical therapy, speech therapy, acupuncture, chiropractic care, ambulance rides, breast pump and other lactation supplies, eye exam, contacts, eyeglasses, artificial limbs, hearing aids, mental health therapy with a psychologist, wheelchairs, etc. Additionally, with the CARES Act that was initiated in early 2020 as a response to the COVID-19 pandemic, the list of qualifying expenses has increased to include certain over-the-counter medications and even menstrual products for those females out there. So here's an amazing HSA tip as well. Amazon actually has a section where you can specifically shop for HSA and, as a side note, FSA qualifying items. How amazing is that? So some common items found through Amazon for HSA qualifying items are thermometers, heating pads, first aid kits, adhesive bandages, blood pressure cuffs, pulse oximeters, TENS units, tampons, menstrual pads, allergy medications, over-the-counter pain medications, over-the-counter acne medications, sunscreen, and for all the parents out there, nighttime diapers for your kiddos. So regular diapers do not count as a qualifying expense for an HSA, but nighttime ones do because they're covering for nightly incontinence, so to speak. As you can see, the list of qualifying HSA expenses is quite extensive, and these were only samples of all of the options out there. So the next amazing fact about an HSA account is that often your HSA dollars can be invested, which allows them to earn even more tax-free money. Now, unfortunately, this is not the case for every single HSA out there, but most of the time you can actually invest some or most of your HSA money that is sitting in your HSA account. So if you do have that option, it is very important that you go ahead and decide to invest it and you can look at your options available and likely select low-cost broad-based index funds that we've already reviewed the benefits of. So for example, my HSA allows me to invest all but $1,000 in my account. So I have to have $1,000 in, quote, cash sitting in my HSA account, but then I can invest more than that. But 
an investment option in an HSA account is unfortunately not always available for you. So for example, my husband had worked at a government job that he did have the awesome benefit of a 457B, but he unfortunately could not invest his HSA dollars in that account. So it is sitting in that account, earning only a minuscule amount in interest. However, you can actually change your HSA provider if you are not satisfied with the company that your workplace uses most of the time. So this part you definitely would want to research, check with your HR department. So my husband recently switched from working for the city job to working in a job that he no longer has benefits because he's working with his uncle's small business. So he recently transitioned and the HSA that is sitting in his former employee's account is again just sitting there, not invested, not earning a lot of money. And he has the option of just keeping it there, but it is on our list of selecting an HSA provider to transfer that HSA money to so that he does have the option to invest it and so it can earn more over the years. This next fact about an HSA account is one of the amazing benefits of an HSA that many early retirees will utilize. So the best way to maximize the benefits of an HSA account is to actually not use it to pay back medical expenses quite yet. So what does this mean? You may be asking yourself, wait, I thought you just told me to use my HSA to pay myself back for all of those qualifying medical expenses that we just reviewed. Well, good news, you are not delusional. That is what I said. However, if you can try to delay paying yourself back from your HSA account, after you have purchased those qualifying medical expenses or medical bills. So how and why should you do this? Well, if you are able to afford a medical expense, such as a bill from an office visit, pay for it from your regular bank account by either using cash, debit card, or credit card that you quickly and fully pay off. Better yet, use a rewards travel credit card, which we will discuss later in travel rewards and traveling the world for almost free to earn yourself points to redeem on future travel, then pay off the card in time and in full quickly. You then would need to keep track of your detailed receipt for your records showing that you paid for a qualifying medical expense. Then you leave your HSA money in the account alone to allow it to remain invested, earning you even more money. So there is no time limit as of now from when you paid for a qualifying medical expense and when you can get reimbursed from your HSA. This means that you can reimburse yourself many years down the road after your HSA has accrued more money since it was invested all of those years. How awesome is this feature? When I first learned about this, my mind was blown. You can even submit for reimbursement in future years if you no longer have a high deductible health plan which would mean that you can no longer contribute to an HSA since your HSA funds are yours to keep in the future. Some in the financial independence community choose to view their HSA either as a super savings account or even a way to access some money when they do retire early. Since you would not have to pay a penalty to withdraw from your HSA the amounts that you have already paid in medical expenses in the past years. 
So with this concept, some people get concerned about receipts fading over the years when they are stored, or that the physical receipts themselves may get wrecked in the case of flooding or fires or other natural disasters. So it is advised that you store a backup or even two backups of the receipt, such as a digital copy on your phone, if you take a picture of it, or upload a picture to the cloud. Now, heaven forbid, if you were to have a giant medical bill for some reason, you may not be able to swing being able to pay that off with cash or money that is not in your HSA account. And if that's the case, and you need to use your HSA funds to pay off that bill, then don't beat yourself up about it. Just go ahead and do it and know that all that money was triple tax advantage anyway. So it's still a great savings and a great tool to use. So the next HSA fact is after the age of 65, you can withdraw money from the HSA for any reason, whether it's medical or not. But if you do withdraw from your HSA funds that are not used for medical expenses, you do need to pay taxes, income taxes on those funds. This means that an HSA at age 65 is comparable to a traditional IRA at age 59 and a half. Again, though, in retirement, your income tax bracket may be lower, so your tax rate may be lower. And then the final HSA fact that I would like to review with you is that HSAs are different than FSAs. So HSAs or health savings accounts are completely different than FSAs, which are flexible spending accounts. Both of these accounts are used to pay for qualifying healthcare related expenses with pre-tax dollars. However, FSAs are filled with money that you set aside for the year. And if you don't use it, you lose it. So that's a huge difference between an HSA and an FSA. So HSAs are certainly one of the most amazing investment vehicles out there. But in the next episode, I'm going to continue the discussion on a suggested order of operations for your investments and retirement accounts to consider. I hope that with the information that we reviewed today, that I have convinced you to really consider investing, not just saving your money, and consider using index funds for your investments as well. JL Collins, who's the author of The Simple Path to Wealth, talks about how index funds are amazing vehicles to invest your money in, but he also talks about how over time, the stock market does always go up And it does always go down at times as well. But if you zoom out over the years, the trend of the stock market is up over time. And as a reminder, it's important that when the stock market dips or crashes, such as it did in March of 2020 during the COVID pandemic, that you do not freak out and you do not panic and sell all of your investments to cash out. You need to keep the money in there because with time, it'll eventually come back up. If you sell when the stock market is low, that means that you realized those losses, which means that you are losing money. But rather, if you keep the money in there with time, let the stock market go back up and do its thing, then you will gain money over time. I also hope that this episode encouraged you to look into 
having an HSA if you are able to. When I first started as a PA, for some reason I had the notion that I had to get the best insurance plan out there. I was young and healthy and barely actually went to a clinic or to a hospital, but I wanted to have the best insurance plan for my peace of mind for some reason. Again, I was totally clueless when it came to investing in financial independence. So that is one of my big regrets was that I did not have an HSA to start with. But my husband and I have had HSAs over the past few years now, and we have been able to save and invest those savings within our HSA accounts over the years. And we have been able to save a fair amount of money in our HSA accounts, and mine has been invested over the years, so it really is an amazing tool to use. I look forward to continuing this conversation in the next episode, but again, I would like to take the time to say thank you to each and every one of you for taking the time to listen to this today. It shows that you are wanting to learn and grow your knowledge so that you can grow your wealth over the years. And again, I hope you can see that building wealth is not just about becoming rich because really all those nice things just really don't matter. It's not about becoming rich to get a lot of stuff. It's about building wealth so you have options for your future. Keep in mind that time is one of life's most precious non-renewable resources. So working hard and investing your money early in your years if you are able to, or when you first find out about financial independence, will help you buy back more of your future time to do with it as you please. If you found this information valuable, please hit the subscribe button on the podcast player of your choice and go ahead and leave a five-star review and write in the comments what you enjoyed. I also really encourage you to consider sharing this episode and this podcast with a PA classmate or a friend or family member, or perhaps a boyfriend or girlfriend or a spouse or fiance that you're trying to get on board to financial independence. For many of you, you likely are not trying to reach financial independence alone. Many of you do have life partners that you are going through this journey with. So it's important to try to get on the same page. I look forward to continuing this conversation next week when we talk a little bit more about the retirement accounts and investing options for you. Have a great rest of your week. Thank you for tuning in, and I hope that you decide to continue to join me along this journey of becoming a PA the FI way. Please take a moment to press the subscribe button on the platform that you are listening to this on, but more importantly, consider sharing with another current or future PA that could benefit from the information that we reviewed in this episode. Take care and have a great rest of your day. Until next time.